Success Leaves Clues. Welcome to the Health Business Growth Show, where we take you behind the scenes of the top health businesses to learn how they built their success. I'm your host, JJ Bergen, founder of the Mindshare Collaborative, along with members of our Mindshare Mentor Team. Each week, we are joined by some of the most brilliant, innovative health business experts you're going to ever meet. These folks have built empires from scratch, navigated the choppy waters of entrepreneurship, and will be sharing both their struggles and their successes on the journey of creating a thriving health business. So if you're ready to take your business to the next level by learning from the best, you are in the right place. So let's get this party started. We are so glad you are here. What if there was a predictable path to creating the business and life of your dreams? Well, guess what? There is. Our guest today has literally helped hundreds of thousands of people around the world do just that. And she is well on her way of her big, bold dream, which is one billion dreams achieved around the world. And uh, we're going to help take that dream to you today. I'm talking about Mary Morrissey, who is one of my very close friends and my mentor. And we have just had the most amazing interview, so amazing that we have turned it into a two-part interview. Mary Morrissey has made it her mission to empower people to create and live a life they love. Now, if you have not gone to one of her Dream Builder Live events that you can do both virtually and in person, you are going to want to take her up on her offer that she generously made during the podcast to all of our listeners, which is that she would gift them a ticket. Like, holy smokes. It's one of the greatest events I've been to in terms of transformation. It's incredible. And she has such simple tools that are so profound. She has been studying the art and science of transformation and how to turn this into results. She's the founder of the Brave Thinking Institute, which is the world's premier provider of transformational training and coaching. And through her life-changing books, events, and programs, Mary has helped millions of people tap into the power within them to achieve new levels of success and experience a deeper sense of meaning and purpose. Mary holds a master's degree in counseling psychology and an honorary doctorate in humane letters. She has addressed the United Nations three times, co-convened three week-long meetings with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and met with President Nelson Mandela in South Africa. She's written three best-selling books, No Less Than Greatness and Building Your Field of Dreams, and her latest one is Brave Thinking, which is a phenomenal book. A great way to start your day each day is to read a chapter of that book. Building Your Field of Dreams became a PBS special. And what we address during this two-part interview is both simple and profound. Like you could literally listen to this interview over and over, and I'm going to tell you, you're going to want to take notes just with how she talks about how to address fear. I might have been a little self-serving going, okay, how do we, how do we deal with some of these things? But I think they're going to help you too. Now, I'm just going to give you a little heads up that the sound, this was our first, our first go-round, and I wanted to, to start with someone who um, I knew really well. This was our first go-round on our portable podcast studio because on my journeys around the country and around the world, I'm going to start interviewing some of the top leaders who can help you grow and build and thrive in your health business and really, again, not just build the health business of your dreams, build the life of your dreams. So Mary was the perfect person to kick all that off with. 
However, I understand the sound was not up to our bestest best. But again, the interview was just too good to not share it with you. So I will be right back with Mary, but again, a little bit on the sound may not be quite where it's supposed to be. We'll also have great show notes. And again, Mary has gifted us some incredible things along with that ticket to her Dream Builder Live. So be sure to take advantage of that. And I will be right back with my good friend, Mary Morrissey. Mary, it is so awesome to have you here in person to share your wisdom and your stories and all of your impact with our audience. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I've heard your stories over the years. They always touch my heart, but one especially, I think for, especially for all of our doctors, practitioners, health entrepreneurs is so perfect. And I think it's one of the stories that probably got you started on this journey. It is. Yes. And so I would love you to, to tell what I think of as the kidney story. I grew up in a, outside Portland, Oregon, in a suburban area called Beaverton, Oregon. Had a high school experience like most young girls dream about. I was class vice president in my junior year in high school. I'm class vice president. I'm on the drill team, have a lead in the junior play, and I'm homecoming princess. And my high school boyfriend, who I'd been dating three years, had gone off to college, came home on spring break. I get pregnant. This is 1966, May 1. I tell my mom and dad I'm now pregnant. My mother wept for me as if I had died. She felt like all her dreams for me were dying. Uh, we had a very hasty 10-person wedding. And a couple of weeks later, the principal of the high school called me to his office and said, are these rumors I'm hearing about you true? And I said, if the rumors are that I'm pregnant and married in that order, then yes, they're true. He just put his head in his hands and he said, Mary, you have terrific honors. You have great grades, but you will not be allowed to return here for your senior year in high school because it would just be totally inappropriate for a pregnant girl to get mixed in with the normal girls. This is 1966. He says, but if you want to get a high school diploma, which, by the way, I did. My dream had been to become a teacher. And I saw this as a detour, but not a dead end to my dream. So I did want the high school diploma. And he said, if you want a high school diploma, there's a place for people like you. It's across the river. It was in a part of Portland I hadn't been allowed to drive in. It's across the river after dark in a regular high school that becomes, it's Washington High School during the day. It becomes Washington Evening High School at night for the pregnant girls and the delinquent boys. So the next fall, I drove my car, walked up. I'm walking up the steps thinking, okay, I've been kicked out of my school. My uh, best friends I grew up with, their mothers had gotten together, decided their girls could no longer see me or talk mm. to me. So I'd lost my school, I'd lost my friends, and now I'm relegated to go to school with other girls like me and delinquents. So clearly we're in a classification of delinquent. I begin my <laughs> high school there in the evenings, and my son is born in December. May 1, I graduate from Washington Evening High School. And in July, two months later, I find myself in an intensive care ward in a hospital having been diagnosed with fatal kidney disease. One kidney was totally destroyed with nephritis. The other had 50% destruction. And they said, if we could get the blood toxin level down, reduced enough to sustain a surgery, maybe you'll have six months to live. The dialysis isn't available. Transplants aren't available at this point. And it is a death sentence. And I'm terrified. I may not even see that little boy walk. He's seven months old. My mother's watching him while his dad is working, and I'm stuck in a hospital. Finally, the night before the surgery was scheduled to remove the right kidney, 
a woman walked in my room that night, uh, identifying herself as a volunteer chaplain, praying with people who are going to have surgeries the next day. She said, when I arrive, they give me a list of the top most dangerous surgeries. Your name's at the top of the list. Would you like somebody to pray with you? And I was scared, although the, the God of my upbringing, JJ, was not a friendly place to go when you felt like you had really screwed up. And clearly, I had screwed up. I'm classified as a delinquent now. I must be a bad girl. And my internal, I wasn't aware enough to know what, I, what this was, but surely it was, I don't deserve to live. I don't, after this, I probably don't even deserve to live. The God of my upbringing is, I'm not going to be here. So she offers me prayer. I said, okay. So she pulled her chair next to my bed and she didn't do anything that in the remotest way resembled anything I knew of prayer. She pulled her chair up and she said, would you be willing to tell me what's been going on in your life the last year or two? So I told her my story. At the end of which she looked at me compassionately and she said, everything's created twice. I know today I would say I had no landing page for that. I had, <laughs> what are you talking about? And then she says, oh, you know this. In fact, everybody knows it. Almost nobody knows the power of knowing this. The bed you're lying on, the nightgown you're wearing, the sheet that's covering you, the walls, the ceiling, the floor, all the machinery you're hooked up to. First, it had to be a thought before it could be a thing. And now that you're considering how everything is created twice, let me ask you a question. If you could live, what would you do with your life? And I knew immediately I would become a teacher. I would raise my little boy, number one, and I would become a teacher. And she said, I want you to notice something. You're in a universe. There's infinite potentials. There's infinite possibilities. So could you agree with me that there is a possibility I could say a prayer with you? And in the morning when they come to get you for surgery, they said, oh my gosh, you look so much better. And they test you and you say, we find no, no evidence of disease. You can get up and go home. Could you believe that's possible? And I told her the truth, no. There wasn't one part of me that thought she was going to say words. I believe way more in my pain than this possibility she was putting in front of me. So she said, all right, if you can't believe that, then could you believe this? Could you believe that we could, she called it a, a, a visualization. I didn't, we didn't use that word back then. Maybe she called it an imagination. I don't know. But she said, we could do an imagination and in that we'll scoop up all the toxicity imaginally that's in the body and put it in the kidney it's going to be removed. And when it gets removed, instead of getting worse, you get just slightly get better and you get better and you get better and you get well. Could you believe that's possible? And I had this interesting moment because I didn't believe it was possible. I believe the MDs who were telling me the best science they had at the time. I didn't believe it was possible, but I could tell she did believe it was possible. And that would have been probably the first time I ever consciously borrowed someone else's belief it was operating on a higher domain than my own. I said, I don't know if it's probable, but maybe it's possible. And she latched onto that and she said, that's all we need. One corner of your mind open to the possibility. Let's work with that. Now remember, this is 1967. We don't have mind-body clinics all over in university teaching hospitals. We, Sheldrake, they're not published yet. It's common, the understanding of quantum field theory and how this works has, is not in the common nomenclature. Talbot hasn't written Holographic Universe, all of these things that later put the science behind what happened for me. And she did this visualization. And then as she got up to go, she says, now here's what I want you to do. Tomorrow when you come back from the surgery, your mind is going to be busy really dealing with the pain that is the consequence of having this kind of surgery. And that'll go on for a couple of three days. 
But as the pain begins to ebb, your mind is going to want to walk down those well-worn paths of thinking that you've been on. I hear how much you love your little boy, but I can hear how much you've been hating yourself. You feel like you shamed your school, you shamed your family, you shamed yourself. And now that you're really considering how everything is created twice, that toxic thinking can have a correlation to the toxicity that's rampaging your body and threatening your very life. So what I want you to do is, as the pain ebbs and you start to notice a habitual self-loathing thought rising up, interrupt it and say, no, that left with the kidney. And then immediately, Mary, imagine that you're holding a little boy's hand. He's five years old. Feel the warmth of his hand in your hand. And you're walking up some steps to a school. And there's a kindergarten teacher, and it's your little boy. And he's going into kindergarten. You give him a hug, and he's happy. And goes into his first classroom, and you're there. Then hear the click, click of your heels around the corner, and there's your classroom, and you're a teacher. Then fast forward, and you're sitting in a great big auditorium or stadium, and there's all these caps and gowns down there, and you're hearing your son's name called, and he walks across the stage in his cap and gown, holds up his high school diploma, and you're so thrilled for all the many moments of support that you've been part of to help him have this achievement. Your teaching career is growing. Then fast forward, and you're sitting in the front row of a wedding, your son is marrying the love of his life. You're there, you're the mother of the groom, and your teaching career is flourishing. I guess she said, keep doing that. I don't know. But that was the prescription she gave me. She left. I slept. I was awakened in the morning, and I realized I had slept all night. The first time I'd been able to do that in weeks, no matter how much pain medication they gave me. So they took me to surgery, removed the right kidney. The, doc, the surgeon told my family, gathered my husband and my parents, that one kidney was totally destroyed with nephritis. The other 50% destroyed, pockmarked, shriveled. They didn't know if I'd even get the six months. And I must have become what today we would call an unconscious competent. I wasn't thinking, no, if I think the way she told me to think, that's going to you know, change the chemistry. And this, I wasn't that aware. But I just did what she said, because after a week after the surgery, my numbers, instead of plummeting, continuing to do that, they just started to stabilize, and they were stabilizing. And after two weeks, they said, you've had a whole week here where your numbers are stable. We don't know if this is going to last or not, but if you want a little time with your little boy, you could go home maybe a week or two. You got to go to the urologist three times a week to get your numbers tested. But so I went home in an ambulance. I was so weak, I couldn't even lift my head off the pillow. And I continued to do what I was doing. And the numbers kept first stable. They were stable. And then they just slightly started to improve and improve. And five or six months after the surgery, I'm sitting in a conference room in the hospital with the surgeon, my urologist, and other professionals who had looked at the science and looked at the results of what I had. And scratched their heads. <laughs> and they, they were all scratching yeah. their heads. And they said, we have no science for what's happening. The surgeon said, I, and he described what he had seen with the left kidney. And he says, and yet right now it's functioning like a whole perfect kidney. I have no idea if this is going to last or even how long it might last. Whatever you, and he said, whatever you've been doing, keep doing it. I didn't know. I wasn't aware enough to know what I was doing. I was grateful. I was grateful to be healthy or healthier. And then my health improved. And ultimately, I got myself into, I was raising my little boy with, and got myself into undergraduate work. And it was that first era of not, my undergraduate work where I took a class called Nature. And it was about the nature of things. And all of a sudden, things, I began to get really curious about 
what was the shift inside of me that produced a different result in my health? What part was that? What is the understanding of that? And I began to be like a thirsty sponge for everything I could find in transformation from transforming our health, transforming our relationships, trans how does transformation going beyond the form of one result into a more expanded result, how does that really occur? Went on, got a master's degree in counseling psychology, did two years in seminary to study all the world's religions. I studied philosophies, the new emerging sciences, become friends with somebody like you who understands all, how these things occur as well. I am very grateful for that experience, that woman who came to my bed who understood that the patterns of thought we have, not just a random thought or a fleeting thought, but the dominant patterns of thought we have create a pattern. And that pattern must and does in this energy we live and move and have our being in replicate itself in results. And here's the fun part. As you begin to understand this and work with it, even in simple ways, there's not one thing you cannot transform. You can transform your business, your health, your marriage, whatever it is that is feeling constrictive to you or not full of life. Mm -hmm. And it starts with having a vision. What would you do, Mary, if you could live? I would raise my little boy and I would become a teacher. And that all of that occurred, of course. But the understanding that having a vision that has enough vibration to it, that you can begin to work with it so that you can come from the vision and not try to get to it. I've never asked this one before, but as I was looking at a story, it's so crazy that in 1966, this woman showed up. Mm -hmm. I'm like, where did she come from? And where did she get that training? It's almost like she was just dropped in by the universe to give you these <laughs> gifts so that you could share them with the world. Mm -hmm. And when I heard that story the first time, it was when I invited you to come speak at Mindshare because I thought, gosh, if healthcare practitioners can see not only the difference you can have in your own life, in your own business, but also that I don't know how you can get someone healthy or get them to their health goals if they can't see themselves there or at mm -hmm. least have some glimmer of hope. Mm -hmm. When Grant was hit, the doctor's told me, we don't know if he'll ever wake up. And then we don't know if he'll ever walk. And I'm like, okay, so here's the vision I need you to have for him. And if you can't hold the vision of him running, living a full life, then I can't have you here. Right. Absolutely. I know you had that <laughs> same thing with a, a dentist, right? Yeah, well, I did. Yeah, God bless her. You know, she yeah. was helping. She was helping me. But, she, but this is the point that people don't realize that if you know that thoughts create and they're creating these patterns, and that you now are transmitting to your patient, you may never be able to walk again. Though you can, well, I think as a, as a healthcare professional, you may need to say facts. And the facts are yes. We and. we think six months, it but there was no end, or. But there are other possibilities. I'd, I'd fallen and <laughs> smashed my face and broken my jaw, and I was getting some, some root canals to keep my teeth in. The dentist sat me down and said, now you've had a horrible trauma. This trauma, like, will, no be kidding. With you. <laughs> this trauma will be with you for the rest of your life. Oh my gosh, I didn't know that part. Yeah, and that's when I said, I'm going to interrupt this conversation. <laughs> that's a possibility. 
It's also the possibility that is something that gets resolved and it's just part of my past. That possibility has to exist. And then she got a little disgruntled. Then later she says, thank you for this. <laughs> but I think we act, we not even knowing the power of our words often speak. And I'm sure that it's a, a challenge. Uh, I find it even in the work I do with people that, you know, they've had something going on for 30 years or 25 years and to help them see that's a pattern and patterns can be changed. So that's a diagnosis, but it doesn't have to be your prognosis. Uh, it, it reminds me of the phrase, and literally our friend Jennifer Hootie made me a little framed picture of this, one of your favorite phrases, hold the vision, not the circumstance, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, so clearly that's what that woman was teaching you how to do. Yeah, you don't deny the circumstances or deny the condition, but you deny its power over your power to create a different outcome. There's a power that we can, you know, how we hold our thoughts, our feelings, and the actions we're taking, those can line up with an outcome you really do want. Someone who's listening, who, you know, I, I see one of the challenges and opportunities is you don't even realize that you're doing what you're doing. And I know one of the first things you, you talk about is to notice what you're noticing. That's right. The, the number one step for any of us who want to have a more expansive result in any area of our life is notice what you're noticing, meaning notice what you're thinking. Just notice, is it expansive or is it contractive? Are we on a worry train? That train is leaking energy when we get on a worry train. It just, um, all the creativity gets sucked out by that. But so we can notice what we're noticing and catch our thoughts and actually construct thoughts and thought patterns that are congruent with the vision you're holding. So again, the first step is creative vision. If it were a year from now or three years from now, what would your health, what would you love your health to be like? What would you love your relationships to be like, your work to be like? And for healthcare professionals, it may be more income, less hours, more impact to answer that calling that brought you into this profession. It's a holy profession. But then we have all the things that impact. Say, how do you walk them past, you ask them what they would love and to, to think of that vision. And I would imagine, because I've done this, is as you're starting to think of that vision, you are yeah butting yourself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? That's right. So you're thinking, okay, I'd love this. Oh, and you're thinking of the how and the limitations of, of it. So you're, you're, which you don't have, what's your, missing. Yeah, limiting limiting mm -hmm. that things so that the vision becomes not the vision you would truly love to hold, but a vision you believe you can actually accomplish. How right. do you work them past that? There were two revolutions in the United States. One, the Revolutionary War that brought us freedom from the British. Number two was a revolution of thinking that occurred in the Northeast about 50 years after the first revolution, where a group of people... Emerson, Thoreau, others did experiments in what today we call metacognition. See, our species, we, as far as we know, are the only species that has the ability to self-reflect. So we can notice what we're saying, we can notice what we're thinking, and we can notice that we notice. That's, that's a higher level of evolution than our dog, our cat, other, other species. Our dogs might be. <laughs> our dogs might be. <laughs> They're evolved the <laughs> When you're noticing what you're noticing, then you can notice, is this thought congruent? But what I work with and help people with is 
when you're crafting a vision, it's the what you would love. It has nothing to do with how you're going to get there. So you've got to put the how on hold or you'll undermine every idea you have with this is where am I going to get the money? analytical people listening. <laughs> where am I going to get the money? Where, I mean, this mm-hmm. when I work for other people, I mean, all the, blah, blah, blah. the life we have has a voice. And in odd ways, it's comforting. It's a comfort. Just put the how on hold. The definition that Henry David Thoreau talked about common hour thinking. So the, here's common hour thinking. Common hour thinking is thinking that what you... Looking at circumstances, situations, or conditions. Looking at circumstances, situation, or conditions for permission to think, do, live, have, and be who you want to live and be. I can't do it because this condition or because of the insurance people or because of this or because of that. That's common hour thinking, and it's the way most humans live and die. And by the way, I had a great mentor early on who'd say, when you do that, attach right after it so I don't have to. It's almost a way to just give yourself an excuse. Say, say more. Oh, so oh, to yeah. not stepping into the life and going after mm-hmm. what you want. Oh, so, uh, you know that could never. I, so I don't have to. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that's because, interesting. I've never heard. You that. know, moving into that bigger space can be it's scary. scary. <laughs> it's the only place we're growing is outside the comfort zone. Right. In the comfort zone, there's no growth. <laughs> yeah, you want to have the vision that it really has nothing to do with the how as the first step. Because once, and so what I call brave thinking, it takes courage to think beyond circumstances, situation, and conditions. It takes courage to think and live from a vision rather than circumstances. So you can have circumstances. I had a diagnosis. I had a prediction on me. Um, But this woman stepped in and interrupted that. She gave me one possibility. Let's resonate with that possibility. And today in quantum physics, we know that's exactly, it's the vibration or the frequency that you resonate with most becomes your reality. Other people are looking and they say, there's no opportunity here. The other person Mm -hmm. says, we just need one. And they, they work with that. Yeah, it was your son's going to die. My other son saying there's a point, maybe a 0.0125% chance looking at me going, that's not zero. And I said, it's not, let's go. That's so right. It was fit. one possibility. And look fit. at that, his life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And here's the truth. It's, all, it's our life. All of us, you know, are, we're, it's life-threatening to not listen to what you really would love to have in your life because it's your life speaking right. to you. And so as you <laughs> listen, I, I believe the soul actually speaks to us in two ways. It speaks to us through longing and discontent. We didn't create ourselves. None of us created ourselves, and we're not, we can't even make ourselves breathe one time. There's a, this life energy, to call it for whatever name you want to give it. And so as we pay attention to that longing and also notice our discontent, longing is the call for expansion. Life is ever-expanding. We're in a spiral universe. Our DNA is a spiral, so there's this upward pull for greater becomingness, greater whatever it is that that ignites you. Only you will know that. So a question to ask ourselves is not what do I think I can have? What does the economy say I can have? What is my history, my education, my money? What do you think can mm-hmm. have? Is what would I love? That question puts you in a different open an openness. And again, as you said, we're going to try to talk ourselves out of it with the yeah buts. On the other hand, as soon as you notice you having them, you can say, I'll talk to that later. My question right now is simply getting clear on what would I love with my work? What I was called into this work 
to do, to help people, to do great things, to experience moments with people, helping them see their possibilities in health and whatever your pra practice is. And it's, I believe it's a holy calling to help yourself have a life you love means you can become more effective helping others. We, that same mentor had us do an exercise and it was along the lines of what would I love? where you wrote down everything. She goes, this, these need to be material things. Write down everything that you could possibly want. And she gave us, I think, like 10 minutes and a notepad. And you just write it down. And I'm writing down a Jaguar. And I write down a condo in Maui. I am thinking big, right? Writing these things down. And, and she has us start to go through the list. And I tell her, I, I want a Jaguar. She goes, Jaguar, really? What color? I'm like, I want the teal one. I'm, she goes, it's great. What other color Jaguar do you want? And I go, oh, no, I just need one Jaguar. She goes, this isn't what you need. She goes, why just one? And then it went on to the condo in Maui. She goes, why just a condo? I go, because a house. I have to take care of the house. She goes, <laughs> and so the, I went, well, okay, I'll have a house. She goes, a house. Okay, but why just a house? why not have a compound? And I'm like, all right, a compound. She goes, a compound? Why not just get the island? Oh, <laughs> but I think about when we were talking about my 60th birthday and you gave me that present and you go, but you must spend it on something you would love. And that just perplexed me. <laughs> and then I thought, well, what would I love? You know, and by the time I got done with what I would love, all of a sudden, we built out an entire new gym. <laughs> and Jim's, okay, thanks, Mary. <laughs> you know? But it is it is such an expansive question. I feel like sometimes we just have to keep asking the question to peel the onion to get the layers of what you would love. Because even at first, you might start to do the little bit of a limitation mm -hmm. of, yeah, but I can't really have that. Right. And the other side of it is that question of longing and discontent was such a reframe for me mm -hmm. because it made me realize now when I feel a little bit of seeing seeing what other people are doing or seeing someone going, oh, I'd like to have that. I'm like, okay, great. Mm -hmm. Put it in your vision. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, mm -hmm. you know, you can, so it is. Mm -hmm. But it brings up something, and we were talking about this just at lunch, it's just about fear. Here at the Mindshare Collaborative, we are committed to helping you increase your vision income, and impact. One of the first things we'd love to support you on is adding a high-profit leveraged income stream so that you can enjoy more time and money freedom. And to help you get started, I've created the Health Professionals Playbook for building multiple streams of income that identifies five proven strategies for creating a sustainable income beyond your primary practice to create time and money freedom. To get your free copy as my gift to you, go to ms365.io forward slash MSI. That's ms365.io forward slash MSI.